Well, good morning again and welcome. It's so good to be here together. It's great to see so many of you here today. I figured we'd have a small group. Our family was out camping this last week uh, and uh, with a number of families from church that are still there. You know, one of the things we like to say during the summer that Sarah and I take advantage of as well is uh, we love the freedom to travel and experience life uh, and do all those things you desire to do. Uh, we love it when we get to be here together on a Sunday and celebrate together and study scripture together and all of those things, but there's no guilt in that. When it's time to travel, please go be the hands and feet of Jesus somewhere else in our community or, uh, or throughout the world. Uh, further, um, when there's a Sunday morning, you just need to rest. Go ahead and do that as well. But when we get to be here together, it's a really special thing. And, uh, and thanks for joining us here this morning. Today, we're going to continue a series in the Gospel of John. Now, we've been studying this for some time, and we have some time left in, uh, in, in the Gospel of John. Now, John was one of Jesus' closest followers, um, and, uh, and so he walked with Jesus as Jesus performed miracles. Uh, he was near as Jesus was crucified. He saw Jesus risen from the dead. Now, some decades later in his life, uh, those eyewitnesses were very few. Very few people left that had walked with Jesus. And so John sat down, uh, likely with the scribe, um, to, to write out his account, his story of what he experienced in the life of Jesus. And that's what we're reading here today. Um, we read this story of a man uh, who, who got to, I mean, walk with Jesus. Uh, there was a saying in first century Israel, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. And it was a blessing. We don't like dust. No one wants to be the following vehicle if you're out riding motorcycles or, or dirt bikes, right? Uh, but, but it was a blessing to say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what it referred to was the opportunity to follow a rabbi as he travels from town to town, as he speaks at synagogue and the next synagogue, and to follow and to listen and to learn, to walk with a rabbi. And Jesus, of course, the rabbi of all rabbis, that was the one that John got to walk with. He tells us at the end of his gospel the reason he wrote down all these things. Uh, he's not pulling any punches. It's not just for fun. He says, I wrote all this so that you might believe and find life in Jesus' name. Now, to support belief, he has written throughout this gospel account um, uh, seven signs. He tells the stories of seven signs that Jesus performed. Now, whereas the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often speak of miraculous things that Jesus did, John uses the language of signs, and he uses it intentionally uh, because what he's doing with these miracles, they are miracles that Jesus has performed, uh, is indicating for us who Jesus is. Each of these signs indicate a little bit more about the identity of Jesus. So last week, Sarah spoke, and um, she was in, I believe it was in the beginning of chapter 11, yeah. Uh, she spoke, and uh, she spoke of the, the final sign that he performs, that is before the most miraculous sign, most amazing sign in resurrection, the final sign that John gives, which is a sign in which he raises Lazarus from the dead. He raises a man from the dead. And so today, as we engage the text, it's kind of the fallout of that experience, right? Jesus has raised someone from the dead. Last week, we talked about the grief and the experience of those that were there, that witnesses, that witnessed Lazarus' death and then saw resurrection. This week, we start to look as, as the word spreads throughout Israel of what Jesus has now done. We are in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. 
There's Bibles under your seats if you'd like to follow along, and it'll be overhead as well. John eleven forty five. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary uh, and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, stood up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Jesus, having just raised a man from the dead, experiences uh, many people flocking towards him to understand what's happening. And as John describes throughout his gospel, there's a mixture of understanding. There's those that believe, those that place their faith in Jesus. This is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is who he claims to be, having witnessed a man just raised from the dead. And then there's those that out of fear, um, out of uh, disbelief, uh, some uh, sense of threat, people that didn't believe, people that chose not to. And in this case, as it often happens, in fact, uh, they go to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the religious rulers of the day and play an important part in the political structures of Israel as well. And so they go to the Pharisees, uh, either trying to tell on Jesus and get him in trouble, or just looking to a higher authority saying, what in the world is happening here? What are we witnessing in this moment? They ask this question, what are we accomplishing? The the Pharisees call together the Sanhedrin, and we don't know a ton about the Sanhedrin and exactly what that means, except that it was a sizable group, and it was the upper echelon of Israel's uh, political and religious system. Uh, As I read this week a little bit about this uh, Sanhedrin that's called together, um, the commentators and and theologians speak of um, a group of the high priests. Um, It was a political council, uh, the highest legislature legislative body in in, uh, Jewish Palestine, um, the Supreme Judicial Court, the grand jury for the most important cases. If something gets to this level and Israel is trying to figure it out, uh, ultimately the Sanhedrin is called together uh, to make some sort of judgment and to figure out what is happening in this moment. And I love the question of this highest ruling body. They say, what in the world are we accomplishing? And this, of course, is a rhetorical question. Uh, of course, indicating that we are accomplishing nothing in this moment. They felt a need in this moment to exert their will, right? To make their plans and to move forward with their agenda uh, as it related to Jesus. And what's fascinating about this text, and as we go on and read a little bit more, we'll see that God is working out something remarkable in this moment. But it's quite telling of human nature that then those with the most power and authority step in to say, what are we doing about this situation? 
Isn't it interesting to, to see that contrast, that juxtaposition? Uh, quite obviously, and, and we'll get to this point in a moment, uh, God's hand is at work in this moment, and here we have the most powerful people saying, yeah, but what are we doing about this situation? And so they come together with this question, what in the world will we do about Jesus? They choose productivity in the place of trusting and following what God might be doing in this moment. And they allow fear to drive their decision making. And quite quite right in many ways. You see, what they fear in this moment, Rome, who is the world power and who is over Israel, but allows Israel to operate with its own semi-judicial system, practice their religion and those sorts of things, their fear is that that if Rome begins to rise up, or I'm sorry, if Israel begins to rise up, uh, Rome will have to crack down on them. Right? If, if Israel claims we have a Messiah, we have a king, imagine what happens next. Rome comes in and shuts him down really quickly because Rome's emperor is the only true king or power that deserves uh, the throne. So uh, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, for good reason, are fearful. What happens if Jesus continues to do? After all, he just rose someone from the dead. All that other stuff, that was something. Someone just rose from the dead, and hundreds have witnessed it. What in the world are we going to do to prevent him from rising up in a way that causes Rome to come and crush us again? It poses an interesting question, because I really want to recognize that their fears are valid in this moment. And the, and the question that it posed for me this week as I was considering was uh, one introduced by, or at least adopted by, Machiavelli. Now, Machiavelli is known as kind of the father of modern political uh, philosophy and political science. And one of the statements and ideas he's famous for is, uh, the ends justifies the means. Uh, this idea that, in fact, in, in one of his um, writings, he speaks of, uh, it is proper for the prince to use fraud and deceit to accomplish his purposes. In fact, he says it's necessary that the powers would use fraud and deceit because they are accomplishing a social order that is good by doing so, right? Does the end justify the means? You see, the trick here is that the decisions that these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, are making are driven by fear of what could happen. And by nature, any decision made not based upon the things that are happening, but instead a question of what will happen, what could happen, are a little bit suspect in my mind. Have you ever experienced what it's like when fear begins to drive your decision-making? I mean, a totally superficial uh, but enjoyable example for me uh, is my wife, and she did give me permission to tell you about this. Uh, we, um, some, some in our family and, and some of our friends are just phenomenal with plants, right? Uh, my parents had a lemon tree that lasted 10 years and produced all sorts of lemons, and they have plants all over their home and throughout their yard, and uh, we never had a gift for that. You know, you kind of get busy doing other things, and you don't water your plants, and all of a sudden you find them shriveled up. And uh, so we decided to take another stab at having plants in our lives, in our house, and uh, and uh, we kind of, the pendulum swung the other way. What happened was fear of our plants dying from not being watered resulted in murdering many plants by overwatering them. 
It took a long time to find a balance. I'm telling you, when that fear of what happened before or what might happen drives us, we just overdo it. We find ourselves drawn in all the wrong directions. The question is, does the end justify the means? And I'd say typically not. I don't know if you're a fan of, of Star Wars, but uh, Luke Skywalker, not in one of the movies, Sarah called me on this uh, when, when I told her the quote, apparently it's in some book written, I don't follow any of this, but Luke Skywalker, uh, he said, um, there are times when the ends justify the means, but when you build an argument based on a whole series of such times, you might find that you've constructed an entire philosophy of evil. I think that's really curious, because in any given moment, it, it'll seem in our lives like the ends justify the means, right? It'll seem like, yeah, but I mean, this is what is so important in this moment that, friends, we can justify a lot in our minds when we start thinking like that, but what he, he, he says is, it's never just one thing. We've constructed a whole array of different scenarios, usually worst case, we're thinking just worst case scenario, and so we often operate out of fear of what could be. The ends does not justify the means. You know, the entire premise of that takes God out of the equation, right? Uh, it assumes that we know what the best end is. It assumes that we could even accomplish things to bring about that end. You see, there is a different posture, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. It's one of trust. It's one of seeking God's guidance. We don't need, know near as much as we think we do. We step into situations in life assuming that we know the proper outcome and we engage as though we can fix something. But let me tell you, friends, we are far more ignorant than we give ourselves credit for. I'm serious. This is, the, I was thinking about this so much this week. We are, we don't know what we don't know. I've mentioned this a, a time or two before, but uh, I remember this TED Talk in which a woman um, was, was asking the question, uh, what does it feel like to be wrong? What does it feel like to be wrong? And if, if we took answers, you'd say things like shame and embarrassment and exposed, right? What does it feel like to be wrong? She says, no, that's what it feels like to be proven wrong or, or, or um, exposed as wrong. What does it feel like to be wrong? It feels just like being right, because we don't know what we don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, in that moment, we're making decisions, and it feels just right, but it might be so incredibly wrong. So here the Sanhedrin is, in, in that moment, stuck in that position of, but what could happen, so how will we respond to take care of it? God, not even in the equation or conversation, maybe he is, I'm, I, I might be a little cynical there, I'm, I'm making some assumptions there. At any rate, they are making big decisions about the future of Jesus, about his life, about what they will do to protect Israel. And Caiaphas, uh, the high priest, he gets up and he begins his uh, speech or rebuke or whatever he's doing with, you know nothing at all, right? He calls the Sanhedrin out, you know nothing at all. And isn't it true that it's much easier to see the ignorance in others than in ourselves? I mean, he falls into the same boat and we see that just a verse later. You know nothing at all. It is true in some respects, he says, it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. 
And there's truth in that statement. Now, I love this moment in the text because it's one of quite a number of times in the Gospel of John in which the author John kind of pokes his head up through the text and he tells you what's going on, right? Instead of just telling us the story of what happened in Jesus' life, John like peeks up through and he says, okay, let me explain what's happening right now in this moment. And what he explains is that Caiaphas, thinking he's speaking just incredibly rationally, uh, let's get rid of Jesus so that Rome doesn't come in and crush our nation, uh, John says, but actually, this was prophecy. What, what Caiaphas is revealing here is the idea that Jesus would die in the place of many. And he goes even further, he says, uh, though, though, um, Though Caiaphas is speaking of Jesus dying for the nation of Israel, John says, but it goes far beyond that to all nations, to all God's people scattered throughout the world who will be gathered as one. He's speaking of the church now, a number of decades after Jesus' death, the church that is now formed and is gathering and celebrating and remembering Jesus and and engaging in their community and bringing healing and hope, right? He's speaking of this church. Caiaphas didn't just prophesy about Uh, about Israel, but instead Caiaphas spoke of Jesus' death for all of humanity that would bring people together as one. We see clearly God's hand throughout this text. We see clearly that God was at work accomplishing his purposes. Uh, Despite all the attempts and misguided actions and whatever of anyone else in this text, we see clearly that God had a plan even for a council intent on killing Jesus. The result of all this, the last few verses in chapter 11, I'll just paraphrase, but the result is they resolved to kill Jesus. They were committed to killing him. And because of that, Jesus was unable to travel in as public of places. And so he found himself more often in remote regions. In chapter 12, I'm going to read verse 1 1 through 8, and I'm just going to make a couple comments on it until we tie the two together and find conclusion in our text today. Um, John chapter 12, verse 1, uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. So he's now back in this region sometime later, uh, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, Lazarus. Uh, here a dinner had been given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. When Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Again, John sticking his head up and explaining what's happened. Uh, He, Judas, um, did not say this because he cared about the poor, uh, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Uh, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will have the poor. Uh, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So we have this dinner scene. Jesus had traveled elsewhere, and he's come back now to this remote region of Bethany, uh, back to uh, the family and friends of Lazarus, who had been risen from the dead. And here he sits at a, at a dinner table in his honor. And while Martha is hosting, Mary comes out 
with expensive perfume worth a year's wages or something, and she pours it on his feet, begins to wash his feet with her hair. And this is a confusing text. I mean, if it sounds ordinary because you grew up hearing it as a child, I don't know. This is a strange event. This is a really awkward moment, and Judas and others are probably cringing for good reason. Like, this is a strange moment. It alludes to a number of things. Jesus, before his death, is going to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus interprets this moment as preparation for his body for death, right? So what's really interesting in this text to me is that both the Jewish authorities, the, the powers in Israel, and Jesus are now convinced that he'll die soon, right? And, and I found myself this week kind of curious. You know, as we go through and we outline the, the book of John to, to preach a sermon series on it, sometimes you come across texts that, that you just combine because you're ready to get from this place to that place. And we combine these, and I thought I knew how they connected, but as I studied it more and more, I found that, that I was wrong. And it took me a little while to, to understand why John wrote these texts back to back. Understand, as he wrote it, it didn't have chapters and verses. It wasn't divided any, in any way. It just flows from one idea to the next. The connection here is Jesus' impending death. Israel's committed to it. Jesus is beginning to speak to his closest followers about it. Jesus will die soon. Convinced that death, uh, being convinced that death awaits is an incredibly challenging place to be, right? And many of us have experienced this. It was with a grandparent or a parent. That realization that we are near the end of this season and it's incredibly painful. And I don't mention it to stir up the pain that we might feel, but except instead to acknowledge that where there is life, death does follow. And there is this reality in which we grieve and we suffer loss when it happens. And yet life also goes on through that process, that we live beyond that moment and experience the cycle of life and death. And I was curious in this text this week, as the subject is, Jesus is going to die soon, to look for a moment at, at the characters in the story, the people that are experiencing, realizing this fact, Jesus will die soon. And, and I made a couple of observations that I thought were significant. First of all, God was at work behind the scenes. In this moment that is tragedy, that is terrible, uh, the nation about to murder the Messiah, uh, Jesus telling his followers, I won't be here much longer. I, you know, I will be killed. I will be crucified. But the behind the scenes, God is at work in powerful, powerful ways. God sees a bigger picture and has a bigger plan than any one of these people in that moment can perceive. And so there is this little bit of comfort knowing that even though the circumstances are dire, uh, God has a plan and is working that out. The second observation that, that really struck me this week was how Jesus is engaged in this season, knowing that his death is coming soon. In this text this week, the example we see set was sitting at a table with trusted friends, right? We see Jesus sitting and sharing a meal with the people closest 
to him. Now in future weeks, we're going to see Jesus continuing to teach and to heal and confronting the powers and authorities in Israel. We see Jesus demonstrate many things, and many of them just quite ordinary. The same things he'd been doing as a rabbi for the past few years. Here Jesus is sitting at a table, sharing a meal with trusted friends. And so I find myself asking today as, as we conclude, so what do we learn from this text that, that kind of gets to play out in our lives? What, what does this text invite us towards? Um, and, and I recognize that many of us right now are experience the chaos or the pain or the struggle in life, right, from one thing or another. It could be sickness or disease uh, for ourselves or for a loved one. And I think what's interesting for me in the text this week um, is to realize that God has a plan and God is at work. Now, quite often, we perceive ourselves as the center of the universe, and that's a very natural thing to do, right? Everything I experience is through my lens. And so it's pretty hard to position myself, posture myself in a way that says, this is really hard for me right now, but I will trust in the midst of it, knowing that God has a plan much bigger than me. Because, in fact, I'm not the center of the universe. But God is working out his plan. He is bringing healing and reconciliation and hope into the world, even in the dire circumstances that I face right now. And secondly, in addition to recognizing God is at work, uh, I find a beautiful invitation in the posture of Jesus for us in, in the weeks to come in our lives as we experience both joy and turmoil. Uh, a posture of trust in God, a posture in which we trust that God has a plan and so we move forward. A posture of seeking God's guidance. See, we don't find it in this text, but Jesus would regularly withdraw to a quiet place to pray, right? I think we're invited in the, in the posture of Jesus into this place of trust in God, in seeking God's guidance, and finally, in sharing a meal with trusted friends. It, it's cliche. I get it. It really is. But I also think it's a beautiful, beautiful invitation. In the midst of the turmoil and the struggle and the hurt of life, here we see Jesus reclined at a table with his closest friends. And I think it's a beautiful invitation for you and me on a number of levels. When life is difficult, we're not meant to carry those burdens alone. A meal with a trusted friend can be so therapeutic, so healing in our lives. But further, as we close out today, uh, we get to participate in communion, a meal with trusted friends, quite literally. I mean, in the first century, they would gather in homes and they would share this meal together and they would carry each other's burdens and live life together. But as we consider what's it like to walk in the turmoil, the knowledge of pain and things around us, we trust in God, we seek his guidance, and we share a meal with friends. Each week we come together and we have communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, this invitation that in just the symbolic little cracker and juice that I love it when it gets to be a full meal shared together and we break bread at a table together. At least we get this. And for 2,000 years, the church has been coming together and, and receiving, remembering this, that Jesus died, but he rose again. 
We remember in the bread, his body broken, and the, and the juice, his blood poured out. And so today, we practice this posture that we see in Jesus, one of sharing a meal with trusted friends, one of seeking God's guidance, one of learning to trust in God, even when circumstances are dire. So today, we're going to take communion as we close out. The way we'll do that today is this. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to invite us to all go to the tables and um, to grab the bread and the juice. We'll bring it back to our seats, and we'll take communion together as though we're sharing this meal together. Uh, in the bread, we remember Jesus, his body broken, and the blood, his, in, in the juice, his blood poured out. Today, we share uh, in this meal together, remembering Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll go and, and grab the elements. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to be together uh, amongst trusted friends to share in this meal. Jesus, we're thankful for uh, your life and your love and your example, uh, for the teachings and the healings. We're thankful even for death, as morbid as it sounds, um, uh, that you are willing to give uh, even your life. Um, and God, we're so thankful for resurrection and hope uh, on the backside of that. So today, uh, we remember in communion, Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.